excited to continue our series about uh, finding Jesus in the Torah and how uh, God's first five books of the Bible uh, don't just stand apart and, and then we get to the good stuff later, but we find types, we find illustrations, we find people that really point us to Jesus. And so excited to continue that. That's where we are. We've looked at Genesis. We've looked at Exodus. And we're going to look at the next book uh, and, and the first five books of the Bible uh, today and how we might find Jesus in those. And, and this may remind you a little bit of something you maybe have tried. Every January 1st, uh, Christians all around the world commit to something very similar. They say, I'm going to read the Bible from beginning to end in one year. How many of you raise your hand if you have tried that? How many keep your hand up if you've succeeded in that? And so I saw some hands go down there and, and it, most people start. There's a lot of expectation and hope with, with starting. Hey, I'm going to knock it out. It's about three chapters a day. I'm going to knock it out. and I'm going to do it. And you, you get into Genesis and things are kind of good and fun. You have the creation story. You have the fall. You have the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have Moses and the flood. And then you get to Joseph. And there's all these exciting stories about God's redemptive work, his power, his covenant that he makes with his people, how he establishes himself and his people, Israel. They're his people. He's going to love them and work with them. Then you get to Exodus and you have the rising of Moses. You have the freedom from enslavement. You have them wandering uh, the wilderness. You have all of these things happening and it's kind of exciting. And then you get to a book like Leviticus. And for many, this is where their readings really start to fall off. Open up to Leviticus chapter one. And so you're gonna need your Bibles in front of you. I guarantee you today um, because uh, we're going to be in it. We're going to be jumping around, not something we normally do, uh, but you can have it on your phone. There's blue Bibles in the back for you to take home if you don't have a Bible and you want to grab one. But let's just say you're reading. You've read Genesis, man. It's been pretty good. You read Exodus. It's been pretty good. And then you get to Leviticus. Look at chapter one, verse one. Let's just read a, a few verses here. The Lord called, called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Okay. Not so weird, kind of normal so far. Then we get to three. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall be a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw it against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering. What's going on now? And cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails, what is happening? And its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you stop there and you ask yourself, what have I got? myself into like what in the world 
is God doing here now? Many people read a passage like that, especially if you belong to PETA, and, and you say to yourself, like, what? What is God asking his people to do here? What is God doing here in this grisly book about death and blood that my pastor has never preached on in my 20 years of being at this church? Not this church, but I'm speaking hypothetically. Does this book that really outlines the sacrificial system, God's requirements for his people, have any bearing on my life today? Because when I open this at first glance, unaware of what God is doing, I really don't understand how this has anything to do with Jesus. What does this really have to do with Jesus? Let's, let's take a look at it. We're going to be doing a little bit of a history lesson today. It's a bit different than what we've done before. Usually we jump into God's word right here, but a lot of what we're going to jump into here in a second won't make sense unless we talk about the context of what God was doing thousands of years ago for his people. In its historical setting, the sacrificial system was really instituted to answer this question. How can a holy God live in the midst of sinful people? God has made Israel his own people. He has coveted, covet, made a covenant with them they are his people. He is their God. There are requirements of that, but he will be faithful to them. He will follow them. He will restore them when they fall. He pledged to be their God and to dwell with them accordingly. But how can his holy presence among sinners be established? And the sacrificial system was was given to, to answer this question. It was about worship. It was about obeying God. But it was also about answering that question. And so at the end of Exodus, God has his people. Again, you got to follow me here a little bit. You got to follow me on this history lesson. He has his people build a tabernacle. Now, tabernacle literally just means dwelling place. And so it was to be God's dwelling place on earth. It was an earthly representation of God's palace and a precursor to the temple that would one day be built in Jerusalem. There was an outer court, not that much different kind of than the area we have right here. And as you walked in to that outer court, there was kind of like a little fence sort of area, kind of look a little bit like this, and you would see an altar. And in the back of that courtyard sat the actual tabernacle. And so you would go to the back there. That structure was about 30 feet wide, 15 feet deep. Some people say a little bit different, but there were two rooms. And as you walked into the first room, the holy place, you'd see a table, a lampstand, an altar of incense. And then you would see a curtain right in front of you. We don't know exactly how this looked, but there was a curtain in front and behind that curtain was the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, a representation of God's throne in heaven where his glory resided, where he dwelled among his people. And so the tabernacle, this area, this, this tent, first room, second room, the Ark, this was a representation of God's throne. This was a representation of God's 
palace here on earth, and it was the center of worship for all of Israel. A worship that consisted of offerings where people would bring all types of sacrifices of grain and in obedience. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings that demonstrated commitment and thanks to God, among other things. Sometimes these offerings required the fruit of their labors uh, or it required an animal. There were sin offerings and guilt offerings for sins intentional and unintentional with the offering matching the financial situation of, of the worshiper. And so a common person would bring to, to the tabernacle, to, to, to that tent uh, where God dwelled, a goat, a female goat. Uh, a poor person would bring uh, flour. Fine flour was offered up by the poor. But really, all in all, what this meant was that a lot of blood was spilt. A lot of blood was spilt. They were more familiar with death than we are here today. Most of you have never seen an animal put down unless you've lived in the country. You know, you love your, your cheeseburgers. You love your steak, your hamburger, but you, you're, you're not coming face to face with death to get to that product. And so blood was spilt, was something they were seeing. Death was something that they were very familiar with on a regular basis. An essential theme to this entire idea, this entire idea of a sacrificial system, this, this way to worship God was the idea of atonement. Everybody say atonement. It's not a, we, we kind of know that word, but in a biblical sense, it's really answering the question, how can a holy God live in right relationship with sinful people? Well, that sin must be dealt with, punished, addressed, atoned for. If you turn to Leviticus 17, turn to Leviticus chapter 17, look at verse 11. Again, we're going to jump around a little bit today. Just a few more pages down the road there. Leviticus 17, chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so, let's just unpack that for a second. What is, what is God talking about there? A sacrifice, for you to sacrifice something, a sacrifice is defined as offering up something precious or else it's not a sacrifice. A sacrifice is offering up something precious like an unblemished animal for a cause or a reason. Making atonement is satisfying someone or something for an offense committed. So I, I, I've offended Greg. Greg's not God, so this illustration doesn't work perfectly. Uh, but I'm offering up this sacrifice for the offense that I committed. And God is saying, I've given it to you, the creature's life, which is in its blood, to make atonement for yourselves, covering the offense you have committed against me. In other words... Those who are covered by the blood of the sacrifice are set free from the consequences of sin. We know in, in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. That animal takes your place and dies the death you deserve, thus appeasing God's justice. This day of atonement was, or this uh, the idea of atonement was best illustrated on the day of atonement 
once a year. The sin of Israel was uh, addressed as a whole in a service led by the high priest. He's kind of like the Pope, uh, but uh, I I don't want to offend any Catholics here, but biblical. Uh, Maybe he didn't wear all the high hat and stuff like that. Uh, The high priest was a mortal man from the line of Aaron who served as the religious leader for the Israelites. He would bathe and put on special garments. He would sacrifice a bull for himself and his family. He would take the bull's blood, sprinkle it onto the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would then bring in two goats. One was sacrificed for all of Israel's sins. Its blood was sprinkled on the Ark as well. And it was the only time a person was permitted to go into the most holy place that year. The other goat was a scapegoat. The high priest placed his hands on its heads, confessed sin, uh, confessed over it the sins of Israelites. That goat then was sent out into the wilderness, symbolically carrying away the sins of the world, which were forgiven for another year. Now, I'm just going to stop here and say, if this is your first time to this church, I am sorry that this is what we're talking about today. You are like, what in the world is going on right now? He's talking about blood and animals and goats and death. And, and I love little cute goats and I love these animals. And what is what in the world is like, this is a messy messy part of God's word according to our modern sensibilities it's just messy like it'd be tempting never in my life as a pastor to talk about what I just talked about and I gave you a very big overview of what you would read over and over again in the book of Leviticus like if you were like hey tell me about this Jesus that you love and proclaim. Most modern day pastors aren't going to go, well, you should turn to Leviticus. <laughs> you should open this up and let me, you know, if you're queasy, okay, but let me, uh, let me tell you about the, the love of Jesus. Furthermore, the system, it really sounds, to, to, again, to my modern sensibilities, to my understanding, futile. Like if the death of an animal must die to cover my, my sins, what will inevitably happen 30 minutes after that animal pays that price for me? I'm going to sin again. 10 minutes, maybe after that sacrifice, you know, I'm, I'm going to sin again. One minute, one second. I grew up Catholic and... Uh, I'm not bashing Catholics today. My family's still Catholic. I love Catholic people. Um, But I remember going to confession. And uh, the idea of confession is, and this is what I was taught, is you go, you confess your sins, and, and, you know, the priest would give you a penance, something to do, and you would essentially be in a state of uh, cleanliness, sinlessness for the time being. And so that's why you would go. Regularly Now, I went like three times in my entire life. And so I was always like, man, I got a lot of stuff conf- to confess this time. I remember going once and being like having something really big to confess. And I'm not going to tell you, but it was something big. Oh, I don't want to confess this to the priest. I mean, I'm gonna, he's going to be like, here's your penance. You got to mop the church floors every day for three years. 
or, or, or you know, you got to become a priest yourself uh, because of what you've done. And, and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. So I confess this big thing. I sit there and he's like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Hey, just give me five Hail Marys and five Our Fathers and you're good. And I remember being like, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and I remember walking out of, of church that day being like, I'm clean. I'm clean. And that feeling lasted about five minutes. Anytime I'd have a thought or an action that was blatantly sinful, I would think to myself, man, there's more I got to confess. And then the next day, after doing that a lot of times, I'd be like, man, I'm just, I'm I'm sinful. I'm going to need to do this every hour, every day. And that's kind of the system that was set up under the old covenant. I just sacrificed this goat. I'm good. 10 minutes later, well, maybe not that good. 24 hours later, oh yeah, I'm not good at all. Why would God institute such an incomplete system? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read a few passages here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. I like writing in my Bible. I don't cross anything out. Uh, but I underline a circle. It's be a good time to do something like that. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So underline shadow. <laughs> underline true form of these realities. It can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So although there's this yearly day of atonement and other sacrifices, nothing could cleanse the mind, heart, and souls of the people for their sins they would commit right after these sacrifices had taken place. He's saying if these sacrifices had been sufficient to deal with sin once and for all, the priests would have ended them a long time ago. They would have ceased to offer them, but that never happened. Sacrifices were offered daily, weekly, yearly. The sacrifices could not keep up with their sinlessness. So why incorporate this system? Look at verse one again. For since the law was but a shadow 
of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The old system was put in place to prepare them for the real thing, to help them see that a final, permanent, greater sacrifice was needed. It was a shadow that left them crying out for the real thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the the greater high priest and the greater final sacrifice. Now, go a few pages back to chapter 7. Go a few pages back to chapter Hebrews 7. I want to do something interesting. I want to compare and follow the author of Hebrews as he compares the old system and the old way of doing things with the new system and the new way of doing things in Jesus Christ. I want to look at how God was preparing his people for the person, work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so look at verse 23, Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So because of death, there were many priests. These guys died. Their service was always temporary. Jesus, the true high priest, his service is eternal, permanent. The job has been filled for all eternity. There are no more openings for that job. It's the opposite of Castle Rock. Everywhere you go, they need, there's job openings. You go to any fast food restaurant, any school. This position has been filled forever. There is no need for another high priest and his service is eternal. Look at verse 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. In terms of morality, each high priest under the old system was a sinner himself. He was a sinful man. Jesus, alone, because he was God, was holy, innocent, alone, and unstained. In terms of the frequency in the former system, sacrifices were made daily for sin. It was a daily occurrence. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all payment for the sins of the world. For those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins have been atoned for, taken care of, forgiven, past, present, and future. No more sacrifices 
are needed. No other thing or animal needs to be put to death for your sake. No more blood needs to be shed because the blood of Jesus has been shed for you. The high priest required to offer sacrifices for himself before anything else. Jesus, the great high priest, only offered sacrifices for others. Last jump here, jump to Hebrews 9. Again, we don't normally do this. We normally stay in one passage, but we could really study the entire book of Hebrews and not cover this topic. But turn to Hebrews 9. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The high priest under the old covenant, he offered up goats and calves, animals of value. Jesus offered up himself. He was the perfect, spotless lamb. He was the greater an infinitely more valuable sacrifice who atones for our sins. The high priest entered a man-made tent, a shadow once a year by the means of blood and goats. Jesus entered the real thing, the actual throne room of God by means of his own blood. And the curtain that once stood there has been torn down. Jesus has made a way for us to have access to God's presence. We now in Christ, covered by his blood, can know and come to God and be with him intimately. Here's, not listening to anything, listen to this. Jesus is not another priest offering sacrifices. He is the great high priest. And he is the greater sacrifice that all others pointed to. Why read Leviticus? <laughs> Why read the book of, of Leviticus? Because the New Testament doesn't work without the old. The book of Hebrews doesn't work without the book of Leviticus. You, you can't understand what it means for Christ's death to be sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning, ransoming, justifying, purifying, forgiving, without a prior knowledge of how God formally dealt with such things under the old covenant. 
One pastor said it does not simply provide the background for the death of Jesus Christ, but the very foundation, the scaffolding, the framework, the blueprint, the tapestry design for properly understanding what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. I can't understand the depth and gravity of what Jesus Christ did for me without the book of Leviticus. I just can't. I mean, put your place in their shoes thousands of years ago. Place yourself back with Israel thousands of years ago and imagine what it would be like under that system and and then think about how would that change your view of Christ's work today? How would that change your view of what Jesus did? You would regularly see death up close and what your sin had accrued. You would, I guarantee you, take sin more seriously because you would see that God takes sin seriously. You would be able to smell death. You would see death. You'd probably taste death in the air. You would see a valuable, precious animal's life taken to atone for your sin. And you would also be aware of the burden of living under such a system, the continual need for sacrifices to be made. Yet, you would also have a greater understanding of the death of Jesus. If you look at the Old Testament sacrificial system and you're like, it was brutal, it was grisly, How could God do that? Then you fully don't understand what happened when Jesus was arrested, tortured, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, crucified, suffered, and died for your sake. What happened at the cross was was more brutal, was more grisly than any offering given in the Old Testament. You'd have a clearer picture and deeper appreciation of the sacrifice offered in your place who is of more value and more precious than any goat or bull. And and you'd praise God that the final, lasting, eternal sacrifice for your sins, past, present, and future has been made. And you'd be moved more than anything to worship him, thank him, live for him, and share this good news with others. That the forgiveness of sins happens when you confess your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ who took your place on the cross as the final, infinitely valuable eternal sacrifice for your sake. And through grace, through believing in Jesus and his work on the cross, you can come to God. The veil has been torn down. You will become his child. He will become your father. And you will live with him forever. Amen? Let's pray.